And now if you're able, if you would stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from Luke 11:37 to 12:3, and I'm reading from the ESV. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets, shed from the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. You can be seated. Thank you, Sister Ashley. We're a, a stronger church family with you in the assembly. Thank you, Sister. You know, it's a, at a very young age, um, we learn that we can uh, say things that mislead people away from what's really happening in our life. That we learn, I can, you know, sell a bill of goods to all of you who are watching me, but the things that really matter and what I really want to do, I can keep concealed. And we call this now, I think, commonly a, a false front or a, a false self, that it's not always uh, done in the spirit of, uh, as I think uh, initially we develop it as a kind of defense mechanism to protect ourselves from embarrassment, that as we grow, it can be turned into a more malevolent tool, that of uh, manipulation and duplicity. And so we have a word for this. It comes into English as the word hypocrisy. We see it in our text today, right? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That the origins of the word hypocrisy come from the theater, actually. That it means a play actor, uh, one who dons a mask, or we might say a pretender. 
And I think that when we get into this category of hypocrisy, if you've been a Christian for any length of time or you're around Christians a lot, the accusation will come, something it sounds like this, well, you know, I, I would be interested in Jesus, but I once went to a church and all those people were hypocrites. They were phonies, that they would declare Jesus as Lord and then I'd see him in another aspect of their life and they seem to be doing whatever I want. I reject this faith in Jesus because of the hypocrisy in the church. Now, before we come back to that, I, I want us to think, though, that hypocrisy and double-mindedness is not an issue exclusive to the Christian church, but rather it is common to the sinful nature of all humans. So take a couple of examples. If we have the image of uh, Der Spiegel, this is a very uh, widely read German publication, uh, The Mirror. And there the photo is Emmanuel Macron, newly elected uh, French president, another term. And upper left, you see a quote from him, I am not arrogant, bottom right, I say and do what I want. And you'll notice the picture, right? A smug little smile, say, I'm not arrogant. And so the German press recognizes that there's something in politicians, or at least in this particular politician, that they said, is there a bit of a double-mindedness here? That he says uh, things on the one level, that he's not arrogant, but uh, then in another remark will say he says and does what he wants. So politicians, right, they face this kind of thing, uh, not just Christians. You know, another example, I was uh, reading this week a review of Charles Dickens, the novelist, and uh, it came out late in Dickens' career that he had a long-term affair with a much younger woman. And it was a great scandal in the press, but the review I was reading was from the New York Review of Books, No Friend to Christians. And the commentator is saying this, they said, how could Dickens, a man in all his novels who holds up the family as something sacred, that the, the, the unit of the mom and the dad and the children, that this is a precious thing to be elevated, how could he have lived so differently with that, than that? And it talks, it talks about the gap, keyword, the gap between Dickens' profession, his public persona, and what he really did in his life. And so we know hypocrisy, the devil life, devil-mindedness, life of trickery, hidden things. We've all been burned by this. It's not just something Christians deal with, but it's something that happens in our fallen nature when we realize we can manipulate things and live in a duplicitous man manner for some time to our advantage. So that is an introduction to our passage today, Luke chapter 11, the end of Luke chapter 11. What's happening here? That Jesus is invited to dine with an unnamed man. We're told of what class he's in, that he's in a sect of Judaism called Phariseeism. You see that, a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were scrupulous about the law, that the very word Pharisee comes from a word that means separated, that they self-separated from the rest of the lowlier Jewish people, say, we're going to be those who really take God's word seriously, and they become Jesus' chief opponents. And as a sidebar comment, you see there in verse 37, isn't it great, Jesus, well, he accepts the invitation that our Lord is one who says, well, I have disagreements with this Pharisee, no doubt, but I'm going to go dine with him and we'll have a, an exchange about real ideas, a good model for us while we love hanging out with other Christians that we can certainly, and in fact, I think it's really important for us to have regular meals with non-Christians to talk openly about things that really matter. And so Jesus accepts the invitation. He's reclined at the table, as was the Mediterranean custom. You leaned down on the left elbow, reached over onto the table, ate with your right hand. So Jesus is doing this but before he does uh, there's a conflict you see the pharisees 
had a lot to do in order to eat in terms of washings. That they had a long list of purification ritual before they could take of the food. Now, before we go in, I know there are kids in the service. I don't want you to read this passage, kids, and you say, hey, mom and dad, you see this? Jesus doesn't want us to wash our hands before we eat. So that's not the, ta- that's not the practical application. This is not hygiene. We do wash our hands before we eat. This is about ritualism. This is about because the Pharisees came into contact with dirty things throughout the day, namely Gentiles or people that weren't holy, that they had to go through this regimen of washing their hands. Now, it wasn't just, as you think, like a quick wash. You say they had to pour the water in a certain way. It would seem that they even had to do this between courses. And you're, you're thinking, you say, you know your Bible well. Say, where is it in the Bible that it talks about this level of hand washing? Well, guess what? It doesn't. You say, well, where did the Pharisees get this idea from the oral tradition. Now, we have the oral tradition today. It's in something called the the Mishnah, if you've heard of the Mishnah, or an even greater document called the Babylonian Talmud. Now, I have a copy of the Babylonian. It's many volumes in my office. You want to read it, you have trouble sleeping, I'll give you the Babylonian Talmud. Tradition of the oral law, long document. Many, many pages on how to wash your hands. Say, why'd they do that? There's a phrase in the Mishnah that I think sums up a lot of religious legalism. Uh, maybe you've heard it. The rabbis taught tradition is a fence for the law. Have you heard that? Tradition is a fence for the law. How do you make sure laws are being followed? Well, you set up laws to protect those laws. That's your definition of legalism. And any, so here we, we know the boundary. Let's set up a different, you know, more strict boundaries to protect those boundaries. So they have this oral tradition to protect the law, and the Pharisees do this perfectly, and, uh, you know, they take it quite seriously. So here comes Jesus. You imagine he's accepted the invitation with all the religious guys, the experts on the law. They've got this long ritual as to how to wash their hands. And what does Jesus? Well, he just goes right away for the olive. And uh, what do you think, the fair, Jesus? Do you care about God's law? We thought you were a teacher of the law. You're a rabbi, aren't you? What are you doing here? And Jesus uses this to expose the real heart of the matter, doesn't he? He says, you Pharisees, you're very, very good at the externals. Nobody can take you to task on the externals. I mean, that, whole, that, that many pages of the Mishnah on how to wash your hands and which way to put the water and how the water should be prepared, you guys do that great. But you've missed the point of God's law. That God's law is not about external conformity as much as it is to shape us into matters of love. Have a look at this one in the context of giving, which we'll come back to, but verse 42, right? Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, but you neglect what? Justice and love of God. You could say this is love of your neighbor and love of God. What's the law about? To love your neighbor and to love God. You remember in Exodus, we spent a lot of time as a church family. We took a week per commandment. We spent another week looking at the covenant code of Exodus 21 to 24, and we're reading about oxens and pits and how to relate to one. And say, what's this about? Can we say, no, it's, it's distilled very simply that we are to be those who love God and love our neighbor, that God wants to cultivate the inner virtues of his people. Namely, we could say, to have tender hearts. That's what this is about. So again, picture the Pharisees. Everything's perfect. Lots of ritual purification. Don't want to be like one of those unholy people. 
but they've missed the point about love. Now, what about this language of woe? You see this and many times. We don't use this word. Maybe do you? Maybe you, has anyone used this word? But hopefully not, maybe. Uh, but, you know, woe to you. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, lawyers. What's, so we wish we had Jesus' tone. Uh, is this, you know, righteous anger? You know, how, how forceful is this woe? He's really unhappy. We know that. But most commentators would say it's something like this. How very sad. How very sad you experts on the law have missed what it's all about, about loving your neighbor and loving God. So we have this misapplication of God's law. Again, another lesson for us. Well, you know, we've got the Bible, and we just all kind of read it, and we do what we want, and we can apply it anyway. Say, Jesus here would say, no, there, there's a real thrust, a real point to God's word and what it's about, and there are great consequences for misapplying and misunderstanding God's word so severe. Have a look at verse 44. What's going on? Woe to you, woe to you Pharisees, for you're like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Now we read that and say, this is confusing. Say the Pharisees would have known exactly what Jesus is saying here. Why is that? In Leviticus chapter 19, we learn that when a pious Jew would walk over a grave, right, because of corpse pollution, that there would have to be all kinds of, again, purification rituals having uh, come in contact with the, the, the corpse pollutions like a viscous gas. Even today, uh, pious Jews believe this, and it says, well, you're polluted if you come in contact uh, with a grave. So what is Jesus saying here to these Pharisees? He says, you guys are like unmarked graves, and you're walking around, and everybody thinks you're the great holy guys, and as you teach them about external conformity to the law, you're actually polluting them. So Jesus raises the stakes. He says, if we think externalism is what this is about, mere conformity to religious performance, we're missing it. And so I ask you, I mean, what, what do you think today? Good, good question for your small group. You say, what do you think today where we could fall into this kind of conformity? You know, I mean... I wrote an article this week about how important it is to attend church, but I think we can fall into that chaps, you know, trap. I got good, good church attendance. I, I give regularly. Uh, Pastor Shaw tells me to bring my physical Bible, and I bring my physical Bible, and even my physical Bible's looking a bit tired, and there's a lot underlying. I mean, you could go on and on. So if, you, if we were relying on that kind of thing, could it be the case that we've not spent enough time saying God has your word, not created in me a kind of performance to be observed, but rather has it, has it cultivated in me a tender heart and a loving heart. That's what Jesus is telling to these Pharisees, not outward conformity, not externalism, but about inner manners of the heart. Now, secondly, and I think for our congregation, you know, every congregation has its own uh, hazard, so to speak, different contexts or different hazards, so I want us to think carefully about this one because I think it will hit a little closer to home. I have this in the, in the heading as the leaders fall prey, the Pharisees and the lawyers fall prey to what could be called the intelligence trap. Now, this language of the intelligence trap I got from a completely non-Christian book by David Robeson by that title, The Intelligence Trap, where he's going on about, I'll read you one of the, and I know there are children in here, I try not to say one of these words, but this is the opening chapter of The Intelligence Trap. How high IQ, education, and expertise can fuel stupidity. <laughs> it's how really, really smart people completely miss it. 
the Pharisees and the lawyers, they're really well educated. They've made it. They know what they're talking about, or so they think. And look at the diagnosis. Isn't it striking? Have a look at verse 40. You fools. You fools. It reminded me of a line that William F. Buckley said, I'd way rather be ruled by a hundred random names in the, in the phone book than I would by the faculty of Harvard. Uh, I think there's some real truth in that here. And that's what Jesus is saying. You guys, you, you're smart, but you've missed it. So what is the intelligence trap, and why is that a particular hazard for our congregation? You see, intelligence can be a curse, because what happens is when you receive, you know, affirmation from an institution, you're well-educated, people say, that's good, you've made it, you've outscored the others, and you're doing well in your job, and we start to be believe our own press, right? To say, well, I'm pretty clever, um, I can, I can uh, you know, do it on my own, and you start to get something close to the, the essence of sin. Now, the essence of sin is that I think I know what I need better than God does. That's really what sin is about. I know what I need to be happy better than God does. And when you're a smart person, as our congregation is, I must say, we have a real risk here. A real risk of not admitting our need, our desperate need on the Lord Jesus. I remember once a friend of mine who's in the National Academy of the Sciences, we were talking about how many in that group of award-winning scientists would be theists. I'm not talking about belief in Jesus. I'm talking about just say there might be a God or there is a God, God out there. He said probably single digits. And I said, why do you think that is? And my friend, who's very modest, he says, I have to tell you in those meetings, there's an awful lot of pride because you've been recognized as a leader in your field, as a really smart person somebody who's got it all together. And you know what runs smack dab into opposition of the Lord Jesus is that kind of disposition in our lives. Because all of us, those of us who are members of this church, we became Christians. Why? Because we need Jesus' help, that we're not great people who have it all together and we've outsmarted the rest and went to Oxford. But because we have crooked hearts and we need help. And I pray for our congregation that we don't fall prey to the intelligence trap of thinking that we're clever and that we don't need to humble ourselves before Jesus. And you'll notice what else they do, and I think this too can spill into how we deal with other people. You'll notice it in verse 42, that these learned individuals stress the details at expense of the plain truths. Have you ever noticed that, how sometimes you know, really, really smart people talk in such, you, you have no idea what they say? Uh, you know, you're re reading like the graduate, you know, the, the articles published in a certain humanities department, like, I can't understand that, and they want people to think, well, that's because they're really smart, and we should think, well, they, you know, it doesn't make any sense. That's the real, it's a little bit like that here. So what's happening? The Pharisees are tithing their mint and rue and every herb. So again, you're talking about obedience to an oral tradition that's not in the Bible, so they're really good, so you can imagine all the mint that's coming to your house, you've got a tenth of it given to God. Every herb in your house, many herbs, a tenth of it to God. And what the giveaway here is, do you see that word rue? That they're tithing on their rue. And again, what would have been made apparent here is that rue, in all the Mishnah, that long oral tradition, not a word about rue. Why is that? Because rue grew in the wild. So it would seem what they're doing is that they're so fickle about, the, they're, they're so uh, 
adamant about the details of the law, that they're even doing something that's beyond the oral tradition in tithing of their rue and their spices. In other words, they're stressing the details of the law and not communing the plain truths to the people. Say, why is that the case? I, I think it's the case for control and snobbishness. That if I talk in a way that's confusing to all, you know, use a, a platform or a position, a Pharisee or a lawyer, and I use all this technical jargon to think, to make it seem, the false self, that I know what I'm talking about, so all of you think I'm a really smart, and I don't speak plainly. Say, that is not a sign of real intelligence as Jesus would see it. But what would he say? Say, you fools, confusing people, paying attention to the details, missing what it's all about, which is love. And don't you love the contrast here with this matter of tithing on the ruse and every herb and getting down in there and you can imagine the elaborate hand. Don't you just love the plain speech of Jesus? See, so some people, I, I really actually, one thing that, that hurts me as a pastor when some say, well, the Bible's very confusing, I can't understand. I say, brother or sister, you can understand it. Jesus is the most intelligent human who ever walked the earth and he speaks plain truths about how to be right with God and the most important things. And this is an example. Say, look at all this tithing and the, you know, this and that. Say, please have a tender heart towards your neighbor and towards God. And so we too should be those who speak lovingly and plainly. And that too reminded me of a 19th century preacher by the name of Peter Cartwright. Really like uh, P Peter Cartwright. Why? Because uh, a parishioner came up to him one Sunday morning. They said, Pastor Cartwright, you know, um, Andrew Jackson, the president, he's going to be here today. So please, you know, uh, don't, uh, you know, be delicate with him. Don't say anything offensive. So Cartwright, you know, gets in his pulpit and as the, the, the sermon comes to high pitch and he says, I want to tell all of you, uh, you must repent of your sins. Even Andrew Jackson must repent of his sins or he'll go to hell. And uh, Jackson comes up to him after the sermon and says, well, Pastor Cartwright, if I had more men like you, uh, we'd be in a better place. And I always take that example to think, may we be those who don't confuse people with technicalities, who lean on our technical expertise to try to give a false front and make them think we're smarter than we are, but we would speak plainly about the need to love one another and to love God. And you'll notice isn't it, you know, you read a passage like this, you came today, you're like, I don't know, Pharisees and hand washings and tithing of rue, what's this? Do you notice where these Pharisees go off track and these lawyers? Have a look at where Jesus says they're struggling. Verse 39, they're greedy. Verse 43, they like to be noticed by others. They sit in the seats of prominence. They teach things, verse 46, that they're not willing to do themselves. They uh, are good at handing out the messy job, but they don't get their hands dirty. And then the bit about tombs is that they speak well of the ancestors, right? The prophets, that's the building of the tombs. They kind of honor them, but they don't listen to a word of what the prophets said. And I look at that and say, isn't that something? It's the same place as I'm tempted to go off the rails, really, that I'm drawn in by money and stuff. I think that's going to make me happy, that I like to be noticed. Not many of you want to sit in the front seat of the synagogue. We can't give these four chairs away up here, but you say, what? <laughs> the, uh, the Pharisees love that. I think, from what we can gather, what they do is they'd actually come up, you know, rabbi be up here, they'd, they'd actually face out. they sit up front and face out. you say, why is that? Well, say they had all the right dress Say, oh, we want to see Rabbi so-and-so, Pharisee so-and-so, they're up front. Look at them. They're very holy men. Love to be noted. Aren't that a great guy? 
say, paying empty homage to things, teaching things we're not willing to do. The point I'm trying to make is that the same, the same temptations that religious hypocrisy had 2,000 years ago is where we tend to go off the rails and we can be duplicitous. And really where this comes down is sadly these very educated, these very educated religious leaders miss God's redemptive plan. That's what it's about. They fall into the intelligence trap. They believe themselves. They want to control their religion. They deal in details instead of plain things. And as a result, they miss the greatest thing in the world that God has sent Jesus into the world to save sinners. So the point we've tried to make, Jesus stresses the real purpose of God's law. And that external conformity, which is something we can control and pretend, but real tender hearts. Secondly, the leaders fall prey to the intelligence trap, counting on themselves more than recognizing their need, which is where evidently we'll land today. Uh, where do we land the plane for us? That we too should stay humble in our faith. You'll notice, I'll read chapter 12. You say, why do we go into chapter 12? Listen to how it's connected. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling on another, one another, he began to say to his disciples, so you see there's a change. He's talking to the Pharisees. Now he's talking to his own followers. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then, let's get my vote for some of the scariest verses in Scripture. You ready? Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Now that stings, doesn't it? Because up to this point, as Pastor Caleb and I were talking, say up to chapter 12, I'm going something like this. Yeah, you get them, Jesus. Look at those bad guys out there. Good thing I'm on your side. And then chapter 12, the double life, You'll fool a lot. I'll fool a lot. Can say one thing, do another, have great conflict between your profession and your out, outward conformity and what's really going on in your life. You can do that for a time, but what does Jesus say? One day, one day truth and time are going to intersect. And they intersect in the person of Jesus. That every one of us right here say, Pastor Shaw, what about all those times you put the burdens on Providence Church and you yourself plow through Truth and time intersect. And I hope what you're thinking now is, who passes that test? This week, have I, I claimed Jesus as Lord as a member of this church? Did everything I do this week actually, was it in conformity to Jesus being my Lord? Did I speak to my wife and my children and my colleagues as if Jesus is my Lord? What am I going to do? You say, well, thank goodness there's great news what this is all about. That God knows in our crookedness that we're more interested in ourselves than other people in him. And what he says is, that's why I've put forth Jesus in history, my son, who's always existed with me. I put him forth in the person of Jesus the Nazarene. That he was on the cross for my duplicity. And that every person, man, woman, child, called to turn to Jesus. To say, I need him. Yeah, I do. I do have a crooked heart. I do sell a bill of goods to others to make them think I'm better than I am. And it's all going to be made known. What chance do I have? Well, there's a great chance in the blood of Jesus. So Christian, what's the call here, you think? For us, 
We all know the danger of being a hypocritical church, which we are not on the whole a hypocritical church. That's not what I'm saying, but we're well aware of these dangers. We say Jesus is Lord. He's our king. That comes with a kind of lifestyle. And when we feel ourselves getting really wobbly, say I'm using my body to do whatever I want. I'm, I'm putting in it whatever I want. The way I treat other people, the way I, you know, I swindle other. Say that gap, to use that phrase from the, that gap between my profession of Jesus is Lord and the way I'm living is going to create a lot of confusion for people. So we as a church, even though we're all duplicitous, even Spurgeon says there's never been a completely sincere preacher, but our, our goal, by the Spirit's help, is to move to greater congruity between Jesus being our Lord and how we live our lives. That's what we want as members of this church, greater singularity, to live for him, to be sincere. Why do we confess our sins every week? We confess our sins because we know we fall short on this standard and we need to turn to Jesus again and again, right, as our Savior, to turn to him each and every day to repent and turn and to rely on his blood alone as we have as Christians. Now, you're not a Christian today. We always have non-Christians in the assembly, which I'm thankful for. Talked to a few last service. I'm sure you're here today. And I don't know where you're at. All kinds of things floating around out there about what it means to be uh, a good person, what it means to live a good life. Say, maybe you're not buying that. I hope you're not buying that. And you see today, there is one who's more majestic than all of that low-level stuff that depresses us even more. That God has sent forth Jesus and that you can turn to him today and away from all the things that leave us feeling empty and disappointed and on this path of duplicity, you can turn to him. And not only then do you receive God's spirit, which convicts us and grows us in him, but you become a part of a church family and you're sent on mission. Say, no job in the world is ever more exciting than being a Christian. You know what else about this business of living the double life? It's very, very tiring. When I've talked to guys who become a Christian, they were in the double life, and men and women, they say, what happened to me is I just got so tired. I, I was so tired that I was, trying to, I was trying to present to everybody this, but the reality was this, and when you, you have that massive gap and you're trying to bridge it on your own strength, you wake up one day and you say, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it. I've been a fraud. You say, that's a scary moment. But if you're in that moment, say, God is knocking on the door of your heart to say you don't have to live that way. Live with singularity. Admit your need. Turn to Jesus. Live for him. Bring it in line, the profession of him as Lord and how you live your life, and you'll be set free. And so non-Christian today, wherever you're at, in this discouraging world and fallen world, see the great light of Jesus and surrender to him. And that's what we're made to do. That's why we're made. So Christians, more singularity, Lord, protect us from hypocrisy. Move us more in line with the profession that you're Lord. And by all means, by all means, set us free in this uh, congruent lifestyle with, um, with the Lord Jesus being our Savior and King. Father, thank you so much. Help this challenging word to penetrate deep into our hearts. Lord, a very convicting ending today that nothing's hidden that won't one day be revealed. There's nothing I can say in private that you don't know. And Lord, all of us at some level have been hurt by the double life that we've committed acts in a manner that's duplicitous. 
So help us to see our great need, that it's not as if I can try a bit harder to erase my record and the people that I've hurt, or even as a Christian, those I've led astray because of my own selfishness and my indulgence. But Lord, that we would humble ourselves again and see the great beauty of the gospel. And Lord, I pray particularly for our congregation, a smart, smart congregation, Lord, that we wouldn't believe our own press and the accolades of the world and depend on ourselves and say, ah, oh, you know, half Jesus, half us, but we would really be those who come under you, not hide behind the details and the externals, but really think about the manner of our hearts, that, Lord, you would do the work that only you can, which is to raise us up as a loving congregation, to help our roots grow deeper, to really be devoted to you, to be sincere in our faith in this world that uh, so desperately needs to hear about the love of Christ. Commit this time to you in his name. Amen.